Thanks for downloading show 34 of the C-Suite podcast, where the topic we're discussing today is the power of radio in PR communications. And so it makes absolute sense for me to be back in the studios of broadcast communications specialist marketeers with their CEO and my old colleague of 16 years, Howard Kosky. Alongside Howard here in the studio is Lucy Davis, brand PR manager for Direct Line Group. And joining us on the phone in some secret location in Kent, where he is currently writing his new book, is Ian Collins, presenter of The Late Show on LBC. So welcome to all three of my guests today um i suppose before i start ian i should ask what's what's this book about give you a, a quick uh, chance book, to get hello. a plug in indeed hello russ by the way yeah the book is uh, it's called 67 people i'd like to slap uh, metaphorically of course uh, and it kind of takes i hope the reader on a bit of a journey through my stream of consciousness about the kind of things or individuals it might be people like jeremy clarkson or jamie oliver uh, but equally, it's more likely to be just stuff that annoys you and bugs you, particularly social media, of course, where people break all sorts of uh, rules of convention and do things they would never do in real life. Nice. So that's been quite a rich territory to um, to, to explore some well, quirky acts of human behaviour. Well, quite timely. There's a few of those uh, that, that we could talk about, given we're recording this on the day that uh, Trump has just been elected uh, for the uh, next president. President Trump. I know. Incredible. <laughs> now, uh, we thought it was... Uh, quite timely to chat about radio as the uh, the latest Rajar figures were out um, at the end of October and for those of you uh, not aware Rajar is the radio joint audience research and that measures um, profiles UK radio uh, listening and uh, the good news for the industry is that audience numbers continue to grow and in fact uh, is now up to 48.2 million adults across the UK uh, tuning into radio every week um, I appreciate that uh, hopefully quite a few of our listeners are uh, international to this podcast uh, but I do think that um, what we're going to chat about today is quite quite um, interesting beyond the UK PR industry and particularly because I know, Howard, you've got some strong views about uh, the fact that radio numbers are not really a true reflection of listenership. And in fact, radio has a lot more power in terms of, of reach and influence. Yeah, thanks, Russ. I think the radio is, is the benchmark, is the, stand, the industry standard for audience measurement is, is what everyone accepts. It's, it's driven mainly for the advertising pound. Um, and presenters, I won't say live or die by their radar, but it's very much a measurable metric. However, I think it underestimates the actual power, influence and reach of radio uh, because its current methodology does not examine how many people are listening live online. Uh, the sample size I won't go into right now, but it's questionable how reflective that really is of the listener. Um, and actually the power of impact and behaviour that, a listen, that the, the presenter and the station has on the end listener. Um, the Radio Centre only last week published a report called Radio the Brand Amplifier, which it equated to 20%. It has a 20% bigger impact on brand than any other medium. But the reality is that if you look at radio, it's, it's the metric that we're measured against in terms of reach, but I think it underestimates the total reach. You know, if Ian on his show references his book and says, you know, 67 people I'd like to slap is a brilliant book, the listeners will believe him. And, and the, the impact of the trust that the listener has with the presenter is phenomenal. Mm. And, it, you know, I don't have the solution, but Rajar as a particular metric of audience reach is very singular in its in its approach. Yeah. So talking of um, sort of listeners and, and, and 
audience reach. Ian, I don't know if you've seen your uh, your own Wikipedia page, but on the first line, um, it says, so, so first of all, it describes you as the most recent signing to uh, to host the Late Show on LBC. But then the next bit, and, and this is the bit I love, is it, is it continues, and I quote, it says, allegedly the UK's most listened to current affairs stroke topical debate programme. So I was just wondering, has, has Rajar confirmed that stat, or, or do you still use allegedly? It's uh, <laughs> you always wonder who writes Wikipedia entries. Obviously, by, by definition, anybody can can have a go. So, um, yes, I think what's uh, what, what happened at the last Rage Art for us, and obviously LBC is in still in an interesting transition between being the the big London radio station to now being uh, a national station mm. through uh, through the DAB uh, platform. Um, so in London, yeah, that's absolutely the case. There's two or three other shows. Obviously, that we're up against in well, there's all all the other national shows that we're up against, but then there are some specific London stations that obviously uh, LBC uh, would be seen as competition with. Um, so in that respect, yeah, we beautifully uh, were able to uh, usurp would be a nice, polite way to put it. I don't want to use the word wipe the floor because that mm. just sounds smug, doesn't it? But it just, <laughs> but yeah, we did rather well uh, in that territory, and then even nationally. Um, a, a similar picture. Obviously, you've got stations like Radio 4 that, you know, are this kind of uh, default um, totemic figure that just sits there and people stick it on and they leave it there. And I also think people in Rage Our Diaries feel rather worthy sometimes of ticking the box as yeah. Radio 4, but I've got no, no evidence to, to obviously back that up. But certainly, uh, nationally, we did well, and we did well, obviously, in that crucial market of, of London. So I think, yes, you can always slice these things and spin these things in whichever way is most favourable. But it does seem, actually looking at the figures, given the format that we have at night, which is very much topical debate and phone-in, that we are pretty dominant in that in that market. And how, how much does it get discussed internally when those numbers come round? And, and also, you know, again, just going back to what we were saying about the fact that you're, you're beyond London, you're beyond national now, because, you know, obviously online listening yeah. is international. It's funny you say that, because... Uh, I mean, I have worked at other places where Rage Off... I mean, I think today, I think it's taken more... It's analysed more than it perhaps ever has been because the market is busier, as Howard was just saying. There's other methods that people use to uh, to, to listen, the sort of bite-sized chunks, the way that people... Uh, you know, little clips, which LBC are very good at, you know, sending out little audio clips or, in fact, now video clip, uh, clips of yeah. excerpts of shows. There's all of that going on as well. So... There's never been more of a focus on, on what Rajar figures are. At LBC, it is very much a, um, a, a conversation that happens internally. Uh, you sit down with your, your boss, your own editor, you go through your individual figures where it's looking good, where you might need to improve, where you've done particularly well. And then, of course, you know we have meetings as well that we, we go through all of the figures. It's rather useful also to see uh, what other shows are doing and where they seem to be succeeding and yeah. where there's perhaps room for improvement. But it's, it, it is, I would say, in my time in radio, uh, which has oddly been a reasonable amount of time now, I still feel I'm about 18, but it's, it's, it's been a while, um, I've never known quite such a focus on how many people you're reaching. But, yeah. of course, that's changing all the time because of, as you were just discussing, that, that method that people have now of listening in a variety of ways. You know, I often say to people, we, we started doing it as a little experiment to call us, um, asking them off air how they're listening. Um, I would then reference when they come on. Uh, here's Jim in Bradford, who's listening by a free view. Here's Mary in Swansea, who's listening on her smartphone. We would actually do that. And it's incredible to think mm. that, you know, that's the way it works. And the other day we were doing a phone-in on Trump and all the rest of it. And we were thinking beforehand, wouldn't it be great to get some American callers 
to join in with this. We didn't have to look for them. They were listening in America because, of course, they can listen on their phone. Yeah. I know they don't count in terms of radar listeners, but it just shows you the extent to which radio has changed. Yeah, it, pro- it proves the point. L- Lucy, let, yeah. let's bring you into the discussion here. I know you're a big fan of radio, and I, I should say that we've actually worked together when I was here at, uh, at Marketeers on a few campaigns. But it would be good just to hear, um, you know, from a client's perspective, why you think it's so important within your comms plans at, at Direct Line Group. Well, it's incredibly important. Um, I mean, as you said, I've I've worked in um, PR for 15, 20 years, and um, I've often introduced clients to radio because as part of an integrated campaign, I think it's um, essential. I mean, one one thing that works really well for us in radio is um, a lot of the time we start off a, a campaign by conducting some research and we split that into different areas of the country. And I think people in specific areas um, really, really relate to a brand much better when you talk about their local area. Um, for example, I used to work for um, a tech company that was based in Exeter, and um, so we did a um, we had a fantastic, very charismatic spokesperson as our CEO, and um, he really did engage the local Exeter um, and and local region because he um, you know we we looked at specific stats which and, and you know things that were local to them, but um, you know as well as obviously national radio was, was important sure. too. It, it really did um, make a difference. Well, we'll come back on to some of the points you're making there about, about local radio, but I just want to come back to one of the things, Howard, and, and in fact, Ian, you, ch- you touched on just before, in terms of you know, radio being far more wooden that's just being broadcast on air. There was an interesting talk um, just a couple of months ago, back in September, by BBC, One's, uh, BBC Radio 1's controller, Ben Cooper, that got quite a bit of pick-up in the industry, and, and he said he was aiming to be the Netflix of music radio. Yeah. And he's sort of started his plan by commissioning programming that will be made available on demand, but interestingly, in, ben were, in, in Ben's words, just for your phone. Yeah, I, I think what, what's you have to recognise that Radio One is the brand. Yeah, <coughs> for that particular for that particular audience group, especially they buy Radio One the brand. The traditional radio element of the broadcast is very presenter driven. So the breakfast show was always the key. You put your talent on breakfast, and then you'd hope the listener held. But if you look at Convergence Media and what's happened, and the, the amount of that people want content when they want it, you know the one job none of us would want in radio broadcast right now is a scheduler because you don't need to schedule really anymore. I think the statement he was making quite rightly was that he wants to serve an audience with content that they can consume when they want, how they want, in what format they want. So there's absolutely no reason why Radio 1 cannot become this content producer and platform to distribute. Um, Channel 4 film do exactly the same. Channel 4 as a broadcaster also has Channel 4 film productions you'll often watch a film on another channel that's an actually a Channel 4 production, and yeah. then you can download it. So it makes absolute sense, and I think it's very forward-thinking, and, it, you know, when I say very forward-thinking, it's like, you know, we've been discussing this perhaps, I remember doing workshops with you 10, 15 years ago, Russ, right. but the reality is if I want to consume a radio show on my smartphone en route to work, I can do so. I don't need the controller or a scheduler of the radio station telling me when I have to listen to it. So I think, it's a, yeah. I think it's a very bold statement he's making. I think it's the correct one to make. But I think it's a huge opportunity for everyone out there because yeah, suddenly there's no 24-7 restriction mm. to the amount of content that can be produced by a broadcaster. Can I, can I just come in on that? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, you know, obviously it's, uh, I think what Howard says is right, but Ben Cooper does have to remember he's working for the BBC and not Netflix. And that, of course, throws up a... 
another dilemma in terms of what they're doing, you know, in the same way that that debate goes, should BBC really be trying to compete against X Factor on a Saturday night? You know, does Ben and his team at Radio 1 really have the brief to take it to that sort of level? I mean, it's in the, the concept and the notion is correct. And putting, you know, Nick Grimshaw's breakfast show out in bite-sized chunks is a great idea so that, you know, whether you watch it or listen to it on YouTube, whether you get a link on Twitter, Snapchat, wherever it happens to be, all of that is... Okay, but of course, if you then start almost making a parallel product, then in terms of the BBC, he's kind of moving it away from what it's intended to be. And I, I would imagine that would throw up some perhaps some Ofcom concern. You, I can see the commercial boys getting a bit twitchy on that. Are one. you talking about the fact that you know the cost of producing all that extra programming? Well, it is, it's the cost, and also whether or not it is Radio One's business to be out there trying to compete right. with, okay. uh, with with other parts of the market in in that respect. And yeah, of course they've got to be realistic and embrace new media as it works. And you know, if any audience was was ripe and susceptible to that, it should be a Radio One audience. But by the same token, there is also that delicate issue of what or where the BBC is allowed to go in that respect. And if they start, you know, the minute. BBC man starts raising words like Netflix, you start to think, okay, that's that's interesting. And I'm sure somebody in the culture department at the government were probably thinking, oh, what a forward-thinking progressive man. We can That's another area that we can maybe privatise. And we've also almost got the, uh, the the model being supported by the people who currently run it. But I don't know if he, I don't think he had that in mind. And I think it's, you know, is it the vanity of people that run BBC stations that think they can take it to areas that the commercial world should be going to? You know, or is he just simply thinking that I need more people to get to Nick Grimshaw's breakfast show? Yeah, I, I think, Ian, I don't, I don't think he was suggesting, you know, he was touting himself to be PC of a big commercial network. I think, as you say, it's just the conceptual element of there's yeah. no reason why our listeners shouldn't be able to consume our content without physically switching a dial on to a particular frequency. True. If you look at what BBC Three have done, and the amount of original content. I mean, they took what was a traditional TV channel, or digital, you know, yeah. digital, they put that purely online. It was yeah. very interesting. Um, the series of Peter Kay was the first ever TV series that started conceptually BBC Online and then True. went on to the main mm -hmm. channel. I think what, what he was doing, without wanting to second guess him, was just saying the, the landscape for broadcast and radio is shifting in the... The content now is what is driving it. And if our audience want to engage with us, who are we to tell them at what time and on what platform? And I, and I think that's the piece. So, Yeah, for, I think that does make sense. For, and, and, for all of us, it's like great that, news. Yeah, put like that, it's completely, completely logical. And the BBC, like anyone else, clearly have to adapt and uh, evolve to embrace all of that. But my concern was just specifically as well on the BBC point, how much original content are the BBC going to make outside their kind of standard Radio 1 brief? And does that then spill into areas that, frankly, the BBC have no business going into? Yeah, I mean, the opportunity for LBC, interestingly, is when they start producing podcasts and content that's not broadcast on just a traditional show, because they seek sponsors, you know, LBC seeks sponsors and has sponsorship yeah. for certain programmes. Well, if it can start to build up a regular listenership and community audience, downloading its property shows, for example, sponsored by a direct line or whoever, I'm not being on the spot there, Lucy. Um, <laughs> but but I, th I think you were the sponsor at one point. But what it, if, but what it, if, but if what we've it just does... done the deal, by the way, then the C-Suite podcast is taking yeah. a cut, yeah. just so you... But, but, what it, but what it does for LBC 
for LBCs, you know, yeah. and it's owned by you know, Global Boys are very astute commercially. LBC suddenly recognises, well, actually, we have an, a commercial asset that engages with the listener on a very regular basis, and it will monetize it. Yeah, I mean that's but, true. If you look, that's at the, the that's the piece you know, of what it's going to do. Yeah. So, it, so the, yeah. in the same way BBC have mentioned it conceptually, the commercial boys are all over this already because they're seeing it as a route to sell sponsorship to reach an audience. And you, and it, you guys are obviously aware of this, but LBC specifically now is set up with uh, uh, visual broadcast in mind as well as audio. So yeah. my, my radio studio looks like a television studio, and it genuinely does. It's fixed with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of broadcast cameras that are all around the place. We take a grab of a presenter, whether that happens to be me or James O'Brien in the morning, that gets put up on Facebook. Some of these, some of the hits on that hit two, three million within, you know, within a couple of weeks. And of course, they're always there. So that's a whole other audience. Yeah. Which goes back to our point earlier. Ra- which goes back to Rajar doesn't measure that. No, absolutely. And, and in fact, it's something I wanted to pick up on because it's the kind of thing you see. You take the TV chat shows like Graham Norton or, or James Corden, and, and they're always, you know, they're looking for that two, three minute snippet that they can cut yep. and share across Facebook or, or, or Twitter or, or wherever on YouTube. And, and like you say, that's a huge, um, you know, opportunity to reach different listeners yeah. or, well, or different like the, viewers, the, the, rather. The, kind of the, Jimmy, the Jimmy Fallon, Kimmel kind of thing where they realized soon on once uh, the, the, the the kind of the, the american equivalent i forgot what it's called of the sort of sky plus recorder where you can pause live tv record little bits i think they realized sort of around about that stage because they've had multi-channel tv forever of course but they and youtube came into play those late shows the kimmels and the fallons and the um and the o'briens uh, realise that actually a lot of their business would be done on exactly that, which is why you get the the, the little Halloween clips come out every year. You yeah. get the carpool karaoke from Corden. You, These things are, you know, are, are incredibly valuable. So with all the, in their with own, the right, who would have thought? With all these cameras in your studio, you, you can no longer say you've got a face for radio anymore, can you? Well, there is that. You know, who'd have thought I'd consider what I wear when I go to work in a radio studio? But you, you sort of do in a way because they're recording, they're recording all the time, and then suddenly yeah. you finish your show, and somebody says, "Oh, that bit you did in the middle, yeah, we're going to take that chunk." And I think to myself, "Wow, what was I doing at that point? Yeah. I wasn't checking my phone." So I want to bring it back to the, the topic of PR, and I was just wondering because we're, we're talking about all these different platforms. Do, do you think PR's job is getting harder when you look at so so we, you know? looking at new players, you know, Spotify, you know, Apple challenging those traditional stations like, like Radio 1, and also where you've got niche podcasts that are, are you know, reaching tens or, or in some cases hundreds of thousands of listeners. I'd like to say C-Suite Podcast is, is in that bracket. It's not quite yet. Um, but I, I don't know. Um, so Howard, let's, let's start with you on that one in terms of, like, the difficulty of knowing where to, to take your story. I don't. I don't think it's difficult. I think the reality is that as long as you invest the time, almost from a media planning perspective, and understanding where the audience are, uh, what content they're consuming, what channels, what platforms, you you serve accordingly. I think the the reality is where you know we only exist as a business because it's very time consuming to manage broadcast if you look at the total outreach across the networks you know 20 odd years ago when we started there were just over 30 commercial stations and you know same similar number bbc just in the uk you've got 330 340 odd commercial stations the, the the time resource required to serve those stations is is phenomenal with the new social channels and the podcasts and other areas 
you're looking at four or five hundred. So I don't think it's about being more difficult for PR. I think it's about a reality of the amount of time and resource that any brand can invest in trying to secure it. But obviously, Lucy will know better than me how well, that sits within the brand. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, and I mean, from, from my own experience at, at Direct Line Group, for example, we spend um, a huge amount of time looking into our exact audiences. We have an insight team that um, that breaks them down into um, in, into groups and likes and dislikes and areas, etc. And um, it's it's just a matter of as Howard said, planning very very carefully um, where we're going to focus. Um, our, our campaigns and um, it so yeah it's it's not harder it, it just takes longer I think mm. Ian um, talking of uh, sort of podcasts um, you know within that mix of, of radio yeah. um, and audio output you started Once a Word a couple of years ago which I was a regular listener to yep. um, but that seems to have gone a bit quiet recently do you, do you have plans to do more or is yeah it's only really gone quiet Russ because of me writing this book right okay which kind of meant I've had two full time jobs one being on LBC in the evenings and then in the daytime, just trying to sit down and, yeah. and actually, you know, put a hundred thousand words onto paper. Um, but yeah, that's—I mean—that's a good example, really. We we also got sponsorship for for that early on yeah. uh, from Mitsubishi, which was good. And I think what Mitsubishi did there—it's interesting what Lucy was saying because I think that at the time was more about a brand association. I think if I've got this right, I can't really speak on their behalf, but I think what they were interested in doing was. Uh, attaching themselves to, if you like, new media, and regardless of uh, what it meant initially in terms of downloads or listeners or who they happen to be, it meant that Mitsubishi within their profile could say, well, we do this, we sponsor the rugby, we uh, uh, have a, uh, this um, deal going with Channel 4 on the brake bumpers, and we also sponsor a podcast. I think they kind of yeah. enjoyed that side of things. And there is something to be said. I don't know where this sits within... Uh, the sort of direct line model or any other model for that matter, obviously being a, on the other end of the microphone, presenters tend to be a bit rubbish about knowing uh, the, the commercial details of these things. But I do wonder whether there's such a thing as some companies sort of throwing enough uh, out there as they can without necessarily having all the data, the download details, and just thinking, right, that seems to be something people are listening to, so yeah. we'll, we'll attach our name to it or we'll advertise on it. And we'll just see where it goes. Because obviously, a lot of things like podcasting, uh, it, it's still it's still relatively early, isn't it? Yeah. You can get your download it, numbers. And but beyond that, it's quite hard to get yeah. profiles and locations and any other details. And, and the, the content was slightly, you know, it was more... I suppose you had a little bit more freedom, didn't you? In terms of, I mean, yes. there was there was I a mean, lot of, there was a lot of bleeping over certain words, but it was yes, very di- we it was we, it was very different output to what what I would yeah. normally listen to you on on LBC. Obviously, of course, we we decided that um, you know, my, I mean, originally working in national radio, I was at Talk Sport, Talk Radio, and then Talk Sport, and the show I did there, which was called The Creatures of the Night, was three guys in their mid twenties sitting in a studio talking about everything from music, pop culture, films, dating, everything, and it became a bit of a cult, I suppose, if you like, and it's kind of, uh, it was it was enjoyable, it was one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done in radio, it was very laid back, there was no real script, we had a little idea of where we wanted to go with things, and it was just three blokes shooting the breeze, myself, a producer and a phone operator, I used to put them on air and we would chat away, and I think the Once a Word podcast had a similar kind of vibe to it, what we did, interestingly, no big revelation here, we, you're right, we did use bleeping or funny sound effects, um, which we thought was actually funnier than swearing um there's nothing necessarily big or clever about swearing 
But there is actually something quite funny about a cuckoo coming in when somebody thinks you should have sworn. So <laughs> we, we almost put, we almost put um, sound effects into places where nobody did swear at all. It, it just sounded funnier if you lobbed in the odd kind of quirky effect. So it did, but it did give a nice freedom. Um, it, it gave that feel that, you know, this is uh, something where you're not um, abiding by or not having to go by any rules or regulations. Yeah. Obviously, you can't libel someone because that would still be a libel, but uh, nor within our concept would we want to. It's mostly funny stories in a kind of pub chat type way, two guys, sometimes the odd guest, just chatting away. But we are going to bring it back It was just because it did incredibly well. I mean, we, it, it surpassed... To be fair, we, you know, working in radio myself, I had, a, if you like, a background which uh, already enabled a certain amount of listeners, I suppose, to by default just go to it and download yeah. it. So that was a, I wasn't starting from scratch uh, in that respect, but yeah. it did incredibly well. And I think, you know, so we are going to bring it back. We're doing a Christmas special and because we like doing it, but like all of these things, it's, you know, it's often time, it's a time thing more than anything else. Absolutely, yeah. Sorry, Howard, yeah. you were going to... Yeah, I think the opportunity for, for the brand, I suppose a challenge for someone like Ian, is that the brand can become the broadcaster with the podcast. Mm. Yeah, and it's, yeah. You know, a nice way, Russ, you've, you've created C-Suite Podcast, this is now a new channel, it's a new brand, yeah. as opposed to doing a business show on Radio 4, Radio yeah. 5 Live, or commercial network. So the interesting part for me is, at the moment... Ofcom doesn't quite regulate the non-traditional broadcaster. So Ian is slightly restricted in anything he does to, to a point because of Ofcom. You, don't, you as C-Suite Podcast, don't sit under Ofcom regs. So that it's almost like self-moderate, self-police down to you. Now, there's, there's the Association of Video On Demand companies, which is an organization trying to, to, to police what goes out on the web. But I think the, the interesting part for the brand and the pop, increasing popularity in podcasts is actually, and I refer back to, you know, the term, the, when people look at the soap awards and the soaps, that was because in 1954, Procter and Gamble funded that the start yeah. of those programs. So it was only when Ofcom comes in and says, well, you can't do product placement anymore without putting a peace sign on, the whole market has evolved. But yeah. from a brand perspective, if, if you have good subject matter and you have the capability and good content, there's no reason why, you know, uh, this isn't the picture of desire, but di you know, there's no reason why Direct Line can't do a home DIY series covering every element. It, you know, for its its automotive insurance, it could do an automotive series about how to look after your car. It, it doesn't have the same regulation as a traditional broadcaster, and actually, so the challenge for brand, but interestingly, the challenge for Ian as a broadcaster is the brand can become the broadcaster. Yeah. And I, I would not be surprised to see it's already starting an increasing trend where if the brand has got a few million friends on Facebook and it's got X number of hundreds or millions of followers on social channels, that it doesn't become the broadcaster because they've got YouTube channels. But yeah. perhaps those YouTube channels, are, it's ad hoc content, it's bespoke, it's not regular, it's not scheduled. I'll go back to my scheduling point. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, from a podcast perspective, if I like the content that I'm receiving, it doesn't really, I'm not fuffed which brand is serving it to me. It, the, the skill of the, of the producer is editorially making sure I engage with it and I, and I like what I get yeah. and what I hear and what I see. So the interesting part for me is Ian's challenge is to enhance, protect, the LBC brand with everything he does and his own brand and engage a listener. Our external brands will want to buy into the trust. So yeah. Ian has an absolute, I'll call you in the third party, yeah. Ian. <laughs> Ian has an absolute value to LBC because the listener trusts Ian. 
that that is not built up on a day in a day. So where brands then try and leverage is I want to work with Ian because Ian's listeners yep. trust Ian. He happens to be on LBC, but he yep. comes to his own content. If the brand also starts to build trust and becomes the broadcaster, well, if I want my content, I you know I the brand. Ian, do you want to jump ship and start presenting for me? Yep. You know, yeah. it's so the interesting part for brand as we evolve, having started a conversation on the reach of radio, yep. is actually radio at the moment because it doesn't measure the impact of reach beyond the traditional sample, completely underestimates the power of radio, of which I consider podcasts to be part of radio. Oh, that's true. So yeah, that's true. for me, if if the marketing world of the radio industry were to get its act together a bit more, which it's trying to do, but you know, if you look at the IAB in the UK, very quickly over the last sort of five, ten years, you know, I'd argue that what they've what Guy Phillipson has done in the IAB in promoting the power of internet advertising through research, through stats, through reports, just validating how impactful it is. I think if radio did the same and started really upping the ante in terms of its measurement and impact mm. Brands will become more involved in it. They'll see a greater value in it, and they'll start investing in it yeah. slightly differently. And to me, that's the challenge because Ian, in five, we could have this conversation in five years' time, and Ian is working for his own broadcast. Yeah. How's, how's that sound, mate? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because we do already sometimes pre-show, and but other times nothing to do with the show. Facebook Live. Uh, bits and pieces so yeah. i can record a piece on facebook live it may well be that you know this is coming up later on the program or it could just be that it's just a rant i go back to that video three days later and i discover that there's thirty-eight thousand people have suddenly looked at it and that of course only ever grows um now that's as how i was saying that there's a point when you think hang on a second this is essentially my own channel that i've got here this is I, I can do this all day long, mm. and I can tailor it, I can change it, I could, I know there's a, some issues with Facebook and how you commercialize it, If I, you know, I think they get a bit itchy if you suddenly hold up Colgate sign or something in the background, or tell people to buy Bovril or whatever, but nonetheless, the point, the principle is still there, isn't it? Yeah. That, you know, this, it's just individual presence, hence the people on YouTube, you know, 18-year-olds who suddenly found themselves with 10 million uh, uh, viewers on a regular basis on YouTube, but when the BBC come knocking and say, oh, would you like to come and work for us? These 18-year-olds are going, why would I want to do that? You know, I've got a bigger audience here and more money. So t talking about sort of influence, and, and obviously without embarrassing you too much, Ian, um, but on, on this point about the influence of the, of the presenters themselves, you know, I'm just keen to get, get your thoughts on it. Lucy, let's, let's get you, you back into the conversation here in terms of like, are there, are, are there any particular presenters that you you know listen to that you follow on, online on Twitter at all? Okay, I'm embarrassed to say that um, because I don't drive a particularly large amount anymore. I used to listen to radio all the time when I was driving. That that was my thing. And um, the most influenced I've ever been by radio was actually as a teenager. Um, I was a teenager in the 1980s, and um, myself and my school friends absolutely loved Radio 1, so we'd listen to Steve Wright in the afternoon. I remember even um, sneaking a radio into school and, and you know, between lessons, listening to a, a bit of it. And everyone talked about um, what the radio presenters would, um, what the topic of conversation was that day, um, you know, what, what Mike Reed had said that morning, um, or Simon Mayo. Nowadays, um, I only listen to radio now and again because I, I literally don't drive. I, I'll put 
put the radio in the car um, and that's maybe about once a week um, and I have to say I'm not just saying this because you're here Ian but it's probably LBC yeah. <laughs> um, I had um, I had, since I've become um, someone who takes Ubers quite a lot I um, try and persuade them if it's a long journey to turn LBC on and I remember getting into a very heated argument um, on a long Uber journey the other week or maybe the other month uh, it was something terribly sad. It was about putting animals down um, if they were ill. It was it was a really sort of quite emotional topic, but um, you know it, it had a huge influence on me. And it was just funny that I was actually you know um, engaging with the the guy who was driving me for a whole hour on it. Yeah, <laughs> for me, it's uh, the influences on radio is my, is more mood than whether you know if if a presenter says I went to see The Lion King last night it's a brilliant show everyone should go and see it I am a bit of a sucker I trust that what they're saying is is correct and it's a brilliant show but interestingly because I kind of know the radio market quite well I'll, I'll use the presenters who I know will affect my mindset so First thing in the morning, I'm up at crazy clock at five, you know, World Business Report on TV at 5.30 and I'm in the car at six. If I want to be up for the day, it's Ricky Melvin and Charlie on Kiss. In other words, those three have such a giggle that their power of influence on me is more about my mental state that by the time I've mm. done my hours commute through traffic, I'm not feeling so bad about that because I'm in good spirits. Likewise, sometimes I'm chilled. It's Russ Williams on Smooth and yeah. the music policy. So the presenters have that level of influence, um, in t you know, rather than do I listen to a particular political... You know, if Nick Ferrari on LBC says something, will I vote his way? Not necessarily, but I think he's a brilliant presenter. His, his power of influence is to rile people. Yeah. Mm. You know, he, as, as a show, the way, the, the skill of a good presenter, I'll mention Nick rather than, I know Ian's a skilled presenter, but let's talk about it as well. As a, as a skilled presenter, that ability to influence me to make the effort to pick up a phone, to call the station, to have a go, is, yep. is an absolute skill yep. because most people in this country we're quite conservative with a small c you know if you're sitting in a room of 100 people and someone says any questions you know who's the first to put the hand up it's, it's a quiet room you know it's often the chair that has to encourage someone or yep. they mm -hmm. feed the first question whereas what a radio presenter is really skilled at doing is is getting a reaction from people to do something and mobilize the behavior if they turn around and say oh there's a fire you know last weekend there was a big fireworks display in St Albans you know and it was the, the local local heart station were promoting it don't forget we're going to be down there great fun fair great fireworks they i know for certain they would have influenced the number of people that went mm -hmm. Because of that immediacy and power they have, and the, tr the trust ultimately that a listener has with, because the presenter is apolitical. Yeah. You don't really know them that well, but you just trust that they're gonna, they're your friend in inverted commas. I mean, there was research by the Henley Centre donkeys years ago that still gets rolled out regularly, which shows that radio is the closest medium in in terms of trust to the yeah. individual. If that presenter says that's a good idea. People but believe that it's a good idea. What I was keen to find out, though, is that because that we've 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 already talked about you know radio going beyond just what's being broadcast on air, and and obviously, Ian, you you've already said about how much Facebook, Twitter is part of your show. You know, you're tweeting yeah. and and but so so what I was keen to find out because you're you're quite active on on social and anyway out, outside of of presenting, do PRs try and approach you and bypass the station and come to you to get you know to try and endorse a campaign directly, therefore using your own social influence yeah, at all? Yeah, if I look at my email inbox, um, it's quite funny. You always wonder how people get your email address. I know they can sometimes guess at it. And obviously in this industry, uh, I, I guess your email address is thrown around in so many different ways for, for work, etc. But um, 
Yeah, I would say on a very regular basis. There is, I mean, it could be something like the standard press release um, that you know, which which has actually been rather helpful for me because sometimes if there's been a somebody might have offered me a guest or something or a, a product uh, that they want, uh, the, the usual thing, you know, we're going to. Um, you, you could interview uh, a famous TV chef or something, Gary Rhodes, but you've got to you know, plug wool sausages while you're doing it. Um, sometimes we've transposed those from, I've said I can't do it for the radio, but I can do it for the podcast, because mm. for the podcast, it's actually been far more useful for us to get quite a big name on than it would be. And it's often deeply inappropriate for LBC. I mean, I couldn't find a way to... I get asked all the time on LBC, can you do this feature or that feature? And it would just sound ridiculous that in the middle of a debate on Donald Trump, I start talking about the fact that Wayne Sleep is coming back to the West End with a new dance show. It just sounds really weird. But, um, but yeah, in terms of, you know, I think this is going to happen more and more. In terms of just getting people say, you know, is there anything you can do with this or could you promote this on Twitter or would you mind RTing this or putting this on Facebook? Um, that, I would say, is absolutely increasing. Yeah, you, I would say to concur with that, you only have to look at the fees in the talent world mm. for presenters and how they've accelerated the last few years. You can see, yeah, and it's interesting because even when you're being asked to negotiate a contract with talent of a presenter, part of the consideration is what's their social following. And, the, yeah. and you know, when you're doing the deal, the rights deal is obviously within the laws of what you can and cannot do within social channels. But it's rather than just the individual, it, the phrase of influencer marketing, which is being banded around everywhere at the moment, yeah. the presenter is a key influencer. And yeah. the value of the presenter isn't just them. It is the impact and reach they have off air of the traditional in into the new. Yeah. Uh, but, and and if, you, if you get it right and you get the on air and the off air, it's part, I mean, years ago, we did something with James O'Brien, LBC, for Army Recruitment, and we sent him to Sandhurst to a training course. And he was exactly the right presenter to do that. You know, rather than go an ad campaign where a media buyer just wants to buy an impact, frequency, and reach, which is, you know, it works in some instances, but you could class it lazy radio and others. If you're going to get the right presenter, the right show with the right environment, and you work yeah. with them in programming, the end application and output of that piece of programming is so powerful. Mm. It's phenomenal. And I remember that Army recruitment campaign. The Army had also produced a series of videos for recruits, say this is what a day as a recruit in the Army is like. And that radio campaign drove traffic to the video. And that's, you know, to go back to what the radio centre talks about as a radio as a brand yeah. amplifier and the online amplifier, it absolutely is because people will hear something, like it, trust it, and it'll actually mobilise their behaviour to then go and do something in another, in another media. For, for the record, that, in, that, in, sorry, go on Ian. No, I was just going to say, does that mean that somewhere there is photographic evidence of James O'Brien dressed up as a soldier with a gun? Because if there is, I, <laughs> I'd like to see it. I'll, I'll repost it on social media any day. <laughs> Sure, you must be able to dig that out somewhere. <laughs> I was going to say, just for the record, Ian, um, out of my 111 guests so far on, on this series, uh, in terms of Twitter influence or, or reach, you are, you are currently sitting comfortably in fifth place. Um, yeah, uh, just behind YouTuber Hannah Witten. So get yourself on YouTube. I won't mention where uh, Lucy and Howard are because uh, Lucy Thanks. told me specifically <laughs> not, not, not to say which, uh, which number she's sitting in. Anyway, um, okay. right, let, let's talking about radio, Lucy, you, you, you talked about uh, local 
radio before, um, and obviously that's, that's as powerful as ever in terms of local PR. Um, I know you worked with the guys here at Marketeers earlier in the year on a campaign for Churchill Insurance, which is part of your uh, your group, um, where local radio was vital. So I was just wondering if you want to talk talk through that, that campaign as a case study. Sure. So um, we're doing a fantastic campaign called Churchill Lollipoppers, and um, that launched earlier this year um, at around, um, and around May time. But before we launched the actual campaign, um, the, the campaign was all about we were going to provide um, funding for extra lollipoppers on the roads around the UK. And um, we realised that the, the issue was is that back in 2002, uh, it was no longer... Um, and no longer necessary for councils to actually provide the, the funding for lollipops themselves. So we found that there'd been the numbers had been diminishing in particular areas. And to highlight this issue, before we launched the campaign itself, we um, a lot we, we do this a lot at Direct Line Group. I think um, if you're launching a brand building campaign, you it's it's good to actually sort of highlight the issue and then come out with an answer to that issue. So we did some research around. Um, child pedestrian accidents in school areas and we found that the areas with um, fewer lollipop people um, had a higher rate of accidents and um, we um, did a radio day with um, marketeers here and we had our spokesperson who is Kelly Cook who was our head of claims at direct line group at Churchill um, who obviously had first-hand experience of, of um, seeing the numbers of claims come in for, for accidents in those areas so um, that really highlighted the issue and, and it was, um, I think, just engaging local radio and hearing um, specifically the stats to, um, you know, the, the areas that were worst affected. I think Birmingham, for example, was a particularly badly affected area. It, it really engaged the nation. And when we came to launch the campaign itself, where we asked the public to go online to our website and to vote for their, um, the, their either their local school or the school they felt most needed um, a new lollipopper, they, um, they they really came in droves and voted. And we were expected um, to have about a thousand. If we were lucky, we were hoping we'd get at least a thousand to make the campaign really strong. In fact, we got over fifty thousand people go online and vote, which was incredible. And it was an integrated campaign. We had TV advertising as well. We had um, radio advertising. We had uh, normal sort of straightforward traditional PR as well. But I really felt that the radio was um, sort of putting putting the issue out there was a, was a great way of kicking it all off. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, the power of local radio is, is the beauty of radio. You know, if, if you're living in a certain area... You may like certain speech, songs, music, but when it comes to news, traffic, travel, weather, I live in London. I'm not interested in the weather in Birmingham at that particular moment yeah. in time. I want to know what's happening on my on my particular journey to work, what I'm, what I'm going to have to wear today for work. And I remember years ago, there used to be a station, uh, I think it was called Alpha uh, in Darlington. I used to quote Donkeys years ago. And, you know, they had a 42% reach of Darlington. Yeah, the station itself wasn't that huge. You know, its total reach might have been 40,000, 50,000. But the point I used to make to people was, if I'm trying to mobilise a behaviour in Darlington, I don't want Radio 1, I don't want Radio 5, I want Alpha. And again, if you use Radar, what's interesting is the national station never ranks higher than fifth in a local area. I think Radio Air back in the day in Leeds was the only one that kind of ever broke, you know, uh, the mould of kind of things. Um 
But it's interesting. But the, the 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 local station is where you have the impact to mobilise the behaviour. Mm. The, the national piece is great because you know you take LBC now as a great station. I think correct me, but I think total reach with DAB is over a million. That's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. What a great reach! You know, it's a big reach for one station, one interview, one piece of content. Yeah. But in a population of forty-eight million listeners, that means that forty-seven million people over that week hadn't heard it. So if I, you know, and the the ideal is a bit of the both, isn't it? So if I want to mobilise an audience in Middlesbrough, Lincolnshire, Manchester, Cornwall, the local radio station is the power. And interestingly, you know, we we work out of London, but. I remember years ago, I used to do a lot of the promotions where you we'd go to the stations and we'd see the event happening in a local area. And the local presenters back in the day used to wear like these uh, puffer jackets with a station logo on the back. And they were like mini superstars in yeah. the local area. You know, and, and you, you don't quite get a grasp of quite how powerful the presenter is in the local area. But the local yeah. radio station is phenomenal in that local area, more so than any national radio station. Ian, you, you're, you know what? It's, I was just I was just going to ask. Yeah, you're agreeing away there. I mean, have you ever done local radio? Yeah, uh, I did. Yeah, I yeah. did um, what is now Hart in Kent. Right. Um, and it's interesting, just picking up on that point, we would do road shows. Um, and it was, you know, you'd turn up at some of these things. It was like being a member of Take That. I mean, I, I kid <laughs> you not. You would show up, but at the time I was about 20, and we do these big, you know, it might be for a big event like fireworks night or whatever, or some kind of summer festival. You know, they'd hire one of the big parks in Kent. There'd be 100,000 people there. I mean, it literally was that big. I, I once turned up at a shopping centre in Maidstone. There was myself and two other presenters. And I think we were opening a pizza place or something like that. We did loads of these things. And, um, and part of the opening involved, they hired the local radio station, which was Invicta at the time, and three presenters had been hired at the same time. And we walked down this escalator as we walked down there, and I thought there'd been a bomb scare or something, because there was just a sea of people. And as we walked down, everyone started clapping. And I just thought this was completely embarrassing for someone like me, because I just didn't have that kind of ego gene that the other two guys I was with absolutely loved it. But <laughs> I was so new and wet behind the ears, I was a bit disturbed. But nonetheless, the point is there that, you know, in local terms, I mean, it was absolutely huge. And that was at a time when there wasn't so much competition. But I recently did a piece in, I went to the Student Radio Festival, and I was doing a piece there. And myself and one of the Capital presenters, but Capital in, uh, in Cardiff, so obviously Global owns all these stations, as I'm sure you all know. Um, that was Red Dragon you know, involved, wasn't it, Ian? It was indeed, yeah, Red Dragon. I used to love it, didn't it? all those little logos <laughs> that you had for different, you know, 210 FM, Radio Air, all this kind of caper, but um, that, that's largely all gone. But yeah, the, the, so the guy that um, I was working with, who was the breakfast show host on Capital, his presence locally, I could see it happening there, you know, that everybody in the room kind of knew him more than they knew me, even though I was the guy that had come from the national radio station, LBC. He was the guy that had come from the local station. They were all students in that area, so they were clearly Capital FM listeners. And he was the kind of, you know, the big star of the day, as it were, because, as Howard said, you know, the impact of those stations is still absolutely huge. And if you go to different parts of the country, you jump in a cab when you get to the station, you know, you know, you look at that. I always look at the radio dial and see what they've got on. And I would say 90% of the time they're listening to Heart or Capital or whatever the local yeah, station that's is. Yeah, that's an interesting way of measuring it, actually. That's a good good, yeah, good observation. Uh, the, I'd like that to become the industry standard. <laughs> but, uh, so get rid of radar and just yeah, survey people in the back <laughs> yeah, of cabs. The, the cab you can learn a lot from cabs. Yeah, <laughs> don't, definitely. Um, 
I, I often finish these these podcasts just looking at the future. We've talked about local radio there and, and all the challenges that, that radio's had, you know, over the over the decades, let's say. But um, where do you think the future is is going with the medium? And, I, and I'm particularly thinking in terms of the younger audience who've got so much choice now. How? Let's come to you first on that. Um, I think the the huge opportunity for the broadcasters is to build their brands, um, and then the flip of that being for the brands to become broadcasters. So. Um, I, I think if I look at Radio X, just as one example, uh, you know, I've got an 18 year old daughter. She's into various different types of music. Um, but Chris Moores does the Brecky show on Radio X. Um, if you go on their website, what's fascinating is there's a listen here button. There's a download clip button. There's a view button. There's a live stream button. Uh, it's Radio X, the brand is, has built a certain identity. It's a product. Radio X stands for something, yep. a particular type of output. Mm. So the so for me, the future for the younger audience is that if I'm program controller sitting within Global, who own radio, they own majority commercial radio now, unfortunately, but you know, you know including LBC. <laughs> um, but you know, if I'm the program controller of Radio X, I'm sitting there looking the next three, five years ahead, thinking, right, how do I build my brand? Well, I treat it like any brand. How do I engage my audience? I treat that in the same way I would any consumer brand it just so happens my product at the moment is an audio and a visual one who's my talent how am i fronting it how am i packaging it i'd analyze my audience what is my old you know that young audience what's their habit are they listening on the route to school are they on a bus is it on the way home from from school you know where are they doing it is it video clips on youtube is it facebook instagram snapchat and i need to make sure as radio x that my brand sits in their media environment now whether they want a 30 second clip a three minute clip a five minute clip or a half hour or three hour show doesn't matter i need to make sure there's a brand i'm offering them the content packaged in a way that sits with them in the environment that they want to consume it. If I do that, I win as Radio X because the reality is the value of a radio, if you remember, you will probably remember this, years and years ago, the absolute cost of running radio initially was getting that license. The license was worth its weight in gold. In other words, if you had, if you bid for an FM license and won it, it was like a gold pot. In other words, we've won it. A lot of money went into the bids. Now, not so much. So if I'm if I'm global, if I'm Radio X, yeah, I've got a frequency on FM. I've got a digital uh, frequency as well, a digital uh, license as well. But actually, I'm up against anyone and everyone. I'm up against Nike. I'm up against Puma. I'm up against Adidas. If I'm after the Radio X style audience, so I've got to treat as such, and then leverage the advantages I've got that I'm geared as a business already producing this content, and just make sure I remain best in class yeah and then and at that point i think radio x will protect their brand and grow their brand Com the the fear is any form of complacency and the 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 pace that the younger audience are moving and i'd argue their lack of brand loyalty because yeah. you know our generation we were very brand loyal to our media the the younger audience you know my daughter doesn't give a monkey's who she's listening to in terms of the brand it's the content piece yeah and that's the that's the challenge so for us you know, can I imagine the program controller of Radio X in a few years sitting there in council with an 18-year-old? 
as opposed to a few guys yeah. in their 30s yeah. having a chit-chat about who should be presenting what show. But in fact, um, I mean, what you say is is absolutely right. I have a 16-year-old daughter and an awful lot of um, I do is, is is just by watching her, her habits, media consuming habits, and she learnt... Well, I, I learned from her a few years back that um, Zoella was about the most influential person in the whole world. Um, yep. And I joined Direct Line and uh, basically said, look, we need to be doing something with Zoella. And we couldn't afford her, but we could afford her boyfriend, Alfie. Or <laughs> <laughs> so we are actually working with Alfie, who's been fantastic. But if it wasn't for my daughter, Chloe, I wouldn't have known that. So I, I think brilliant. my advice This is, is like the film Big, isn't it? When <laughs> Tom Hanks suddenly becomes that boy yeah. in the boardroom. That's right. I don't get it. it, it um, Ian, I'll, I'll give you the last words, Ian, as uh, you are the radio man here. Um, what, what, what's your I, thoughts on it? I mean, all of that is, I mean, isn't that incredible that Zoella was unaffordable for a major brand? I mean, that just kind of tells you where where these things are going. I was talking to my niece recently who didn't really understand the concept of a radio station. She didn't quite get that thing because she flicks around and she looks at her phone and she's got different apps. So she might listen to Grimshaw on Radio 1. She might listen to something on Radio X. She might go to Spotify. She's got all of this going on. The idea of a sort of station where you dutifully listen to Chris Evans and then Jeremy Vine and then Steve Wright, that kind of thing just didn't really mean anything to her. That was an alien concept. And obviously the smartphone is king in all of this. I think that's going to continue. Good example that Howard made there about Radio X. I don't listen to Radio X often. On occasions it's on at home, but not often. But I do watch the videos. So I use their, their app to look at the videos that Chris Moyles has made that morning. So that's my way of digesting their brand. And I think... As a presenter, and obviously despite the fact that I'm full-time at LBC, I'm still freelance, um, I've never been more aware of that whole thing of being your own product and your own brand as well. And that's something that I think a lot of guys in my industry have not even explored, but it's absolutely vital that you have that thing, you know, your own kind of USP, as it were, that you can, you're able to take your product onto Facebook, you're able to take it onto LBC, I can take it onto a podcast, etc., you, Where that goes in terms of the collective data, who knows? Yeah, do you, with, I'm, I'm and, not, we'll, and we'll rage our existence yeah, in the future. Yeah, yeah true. I, I know I said that was the last word just now. I'm going to ask. I'm going to throw in one more. And I'm, not, I'm not writing you off here in, in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> but do you think the younger presenters coming through are are more in tune with that whole personal brand because of growing up with with the whole social media? You know, having having their own in, uh, um, channels on, on online. Just yeah, I think I think I think that's absolutely true. And I I think interestingly with I mean, we mentioned Zoella at the beginning of that, and yeah. that she's obviously the yardstick in all of this, because uh, that is absolutely where I think younger people are looking at. They look at indie, they, they might like, um, you know, a certain person. You know, I've, I've spoken to people, younger people as well, when discussing this before, where they've not necessarily even known who the presenter was. They've just liked the music they played. So that's not a good example of where the presenter is a brand. That's just yeah. the music they've enjoyed. So... Uh, but I do think, yeah, I think younger people are going to be more discerning about what they listen to. I often get a call once in a while on the show where if we've got into the conversation of how they began listening, they only started listening because a friend of theirs tweeted something that they got off Facebook. And then as a result of that, they begin. So it went through that sort of journey, yeah. which once upon a time, people just used to turn a radio on in their kitchen and listen to what was there. Now, of course. Uh, my boss always says, you know, that phone, which is the last thing that people have beside them before they go to sleep, is absolutely crucial to what is going on because that's the bit where 
last thing at night. I know it's not meant to be good for your eyes or your sleep, but everybody does it. You're looking through there. You're looking at the comments. You're looking at a bit of Twitter. You get involved in a conversation. You might see something on YouTube. It's those. It's trying to put yourself in that place so that somebody is going to discover you within that strange journey. Yeah, the, the only thing I would say to defend the presenter, it's a skill. Yeah, Zoella pushes content to her audience. It's not engaging. You know, we mentioned Nick Ferrari earlier. Yeah, you know, he engages people. It's a two-way conversation. It's a two-way experience. The if I take you know without wanting to criticise my daughter, obviously, but majority of eighteen-year-olds don't know how to have a grown-up you know two-way conversation in the real world with the audio word. You know, it's a it's a written text kind of symbol. Yeah. So even though Zoella in terms of influencer from a vlogging perspective has a huge reach and if she says this top or this bit of makeup is it yeah absolutely the product will will shift no doubt i don't think they currently have the right training that there because there's no need because the amount of money youtubers are making they're not having to go through a school of learning in how yeah, how right. are you how do you become a great presenter yeah and but i think that, jimmy matter anymore though howard i mean is that a you know we've got that guy ryland who was on the x factor um, who's now a major presenter? The guy can't yeah. actually present for toffee, but no, people but, love him. Yeah, but he. <laughs> yeah, but the type of programming he he's only. Yeah, you know, well, I haven't not met him, but I'd suggest the programming that commission him at the moment is a particular type of output. It's yeah, that reality TV gossip. Yeah. Nick Ferrari is a brilliant presenter. Brilliant presenter. Yeah. You know, Jimmy Young sadly was a brilliant. Terry Woke. You know, there are. The, B, the the BBC, to its credit, trained some excellent presenters, and it's a, you know I I still believe it's a skill to be a, a good presenter. My slight concern, and I think this is where there there will always be a need for it, is that you mentioned the phone being by the side of the bed, Ian. But the reality yeah. is, the number of people who will actually want to hear the audio, have a hear a conversation, not watch a piece of video. Do I think Zoella would be as powerful audio only? No. No, yeah, exactly. and that, and we're here talking about radio. Yeah, it's still you know for all the digital, for all the social channels that exist at the moment, the popularity and the drive and, and the investment in it. There are, I think it's just over twenty-one hours a week a, listen, a, a radio listenership, the same as TV. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. powerful. It, you know, forty-eight million people a week are listening yep. every single week. That's not just because they want a piece of content. I, I would argue good presenters are worth their absolute weight in gold. That's probably a, a good way to finish because we were we were we started off talking about the power of radio. So Howard summed it up quite nicely there. Um, listen, I want to thank all my guests today: Lucy Davis of Direct Line Group, um, Ian Collins of LBC, um, and of course Howard Kosky of Marketeers. And thanks to Howard's team here in the studio for hosting and recording the show. Um, as always, just a quick reminder uh, that you can now follow the show on Twitter. Uh, we're, we're we're on talking to social media. Um, just go to at C Suite Podcast, and you can listen to previous shows on SoundCloud or iTunes as well. Just search for the C Suite Podcast and. If you do, please do subscribe, give us a positive rating and review because that helps us up the charts. Uh, there's also a link from the SoundCloud page to our new Facebook group as well. Um, so maybe I should start doing some Facebook live filming. You never know. Um, and, uh, and you can uh, join the conversation there as well. So uh, please do get involved. Um, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and goodbye. <laughs>